indeed. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Of course. What's going on, Wolfond? Just living day by day, trying to trying to figure it all out. How about you? Yeah, trying to figure out how to save the Celtics, man. Just doing <laughs> just doing the Lord's work over here. Just doing the Lord's work over here. Yeah. Just imagining you like huddled in a corner of your condo like charlie day from it's always sunny yeah. with the the cork board in the background just losing yeah. your mind no that's uh, there's a lot going on in the nba as there always is and it's just um kind of tough sometimes to keep up to try and get your arms around everything to figure out where to start so let's just take a a quick sort of glance around the league at some things that have caught our eye that are interesting that uh, we feel we ought to touch on in this episode. Over in Denver, there's a blood feud brewing between the Morris brothers and the Jokic brothers after Markeef and Nikola took turns giving each other cheap shots on Monday night. Uh, Jokic has been suspended for one game, only one game, uh, despite almost putting Markeef Morris on a stretcher with a nasty shoulder check. And then also Michael Porter Jr. is out indefinitely with this back injury that just hasn't seemed to have subsided at all really since he got drafted uh, and he just signed this max contract. So that's a bit of a concern. In Philly, half of the 76ers have COVID. Uh, They played without probably their four best players realistically last night. And honestly, they're still hanging tough. But Yeah, that's what I was (laughs) going to say. They still gave Milwaukee a fight. Yeah, just like they gave the Knicks a fight. And I know we'll talk about like, all this because before. you wrote about them and we, we'll get into it. But I'll, I'll let you continue for now in your little intro here. Well, just, yeah, I mean, like they, they need to get some guys back <laughs> sometime soon. And also at some point they're going to need to figure out this Ben Simmons situation because it's just getting uglier and uglier, honestly. Uh, they've started finding Simmons again because they're frustrated by the lack of transparency or just the lack of communication uh, about his progress as he works through the mental health challenges that he has cited as the reason that he's not prepared to play right now. So that's going on in Philly. Uh, And then, as you mentioned in Boston, I do think, you know, since the last time we talked about them, there have been signs that things are improving on the court. I guess it's unclear if the locker room is stable right now. And we do know that the front office has at least started to kick the tires on a potential Ben Simmons deal. So there's that. Back over in the Northwest Division, Portland is a bit of a mess right now. Dame is in a big-time slump, though he also, I guess, has shown some hints of turning things around. I thought he was good last night against the Clippers, although he also seemed to be dealing with some kind of rib or ab issue at hit, the end of that flexor, game. flexor, I think, maybe? I don't know. I, I think he, he said he got like hit in the ribs and that ah. it had... I, I don't know, but he might was miss Mar- some was time. Was Morris around? <laughs> um, the, uh, I actually think given Dame's struggles, things haven't been all that bad for Portland on the court. Um, they are still struggling defensively despite this new scheme and some new personnel. But more than that, it's just like they, they were dealing with a lot of off-court drama in the offseason. And it seems to have followed them into the season. Now, president of basketball operations, Neil Olshay, is under investigation by the NBA 
for creating a hostile work environment and seemingly just treating employees like shit. So that's going on as a backdrop to some on-court weirdness with the team superstar player who insists that he's committed to the team, but who really knows? And then finally in Golden State, everything is absolutely peachy and the Warriors once again look like legitimate title contenders. So where do you want to start with all this, Cash? You want to start with, with the stuff that's going well? Or should we dive right into the turmoil and drama embroiling some of these other teams? Drama, baby. Drama. <laughs> all right. I didn't grow up watching The Young and the Restless for nothing, all right? If there's one thing I know, it's drama. It's daytime drama. And Did you grow up watching Young and the Restless? Yeah, absolutely. One of my uh, all-time moments was v- uh, meeting Eric Braden, a.k.a. Victor Newman, at a brunch event a couple years ago that my mom and sister were going to, I found out and was like, well, uh, why was a ticket not included for me? Bought a ticket for myself under the guise of I'll drive you guys to the event. Meanwhile, I was also going to the event and hogged more time with Victor Newman than any of the 70 year old ladies that were there at this event. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about some of the, uh, the NBA's daytime soaps. Yeah. Let's go to Boston because okay. I just wrote about them. Um, so, the first thing is I could just go on and laugh and make jokes about the fact that a few weeks ago, one of my bold predictions for the season and the one that at the time I was like, okay, this one's the boldest and it's got like the least to do with on-court results and stuff, but here's my boldest prediction. And if anyone remembers that from a few weeks ago, it was that a season of turmoil and disappointment in Boston would lead to Jalen Brown, at least on the trade block, if not traded at some point, not necessarily this season, but like at some point in the near future. Even me who made that bold prediction could not have anticipated that the rumors would start flying like three weeks into the season. And I know like, I I will clarify when I say rumors, the report from, I believe it was Shams was that the Celtics have kicked the tires on potentially acquiring Ben Simmons. It's not like they tr- they called up Philly and were like, hey, Jalen Brown's on the table. And then it's that, from Philly's perspective, of course, Jalen Brown would have to be in the deal. So I do want to clarify that. But as I wrote in a feature you can find on the app about whether this slow start in Boston is the beginning of the end for this iteration of the Celtics, like this isn't just me now being like, okay, haha, funny, my bold prediction's coming true. Let's get Jalen Brown out of Boston for the sake of daytime drama. Like I actually believe the Celtics are going to have to like seriously consider this, not necessarily the Simmons deal, but in general, moving Brown. Um, forget like the fact that they, you know, they're off to this four and six start. That is what it is. But I think, like, look, the, you you can win with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum together. I don't want to get that confused. And as I wrote in the piece, like most franchises in the NBA would be very envious, are very envious of having this as a starting point, like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. My issue is you have those two guys, but you're not building towards contention right now. You're actually actively slipping further and further from it over the last year or so. And I think that's a big difference, right? Like when you have a couple young stars locked up and you're progressing towards something, or there's a path at least to like progress with these guys towards contending, then it's like, obviously you just try to keep, you know, shuffling the pieces around them, waiting for your opportunity to make a move for another star and you keep building forward. The problem in this situation is that the Celtics have kind of not fully run out of options, but they have a much less clear path to finding a way to win with Tatum and Brown. And I'll explain all that. So 
first of all, like as we discussed so many times back when the Celtics were more stacked, like it was one thing when it was Tatum, Brown, Gordon Hayward, and one of Kyrie Irving or Kemba Walker, right? And we always talked about this just like abundance of shot creation they had and how frankly it would like overwhelm opponents, especially when you consider the playoffs and how shot creation and shot making is probably the most important skill that kind of puts you over the top in the playoffs, especially that like star level shot creation. Well, Hayward, Irving, and Kemba obviously are all long gone, but really with nothing to show for it other than the return of Al Horford and like one or two middling picks. So that's one. And without that abundance of shot creation around them and guys they can defer to, you're seeing the limits of an offense just completely dominated by Tatum and Brown. And you know, there's not there's not as much depth on this team. There's not as much overall talent. There's not as much overall offensive talent. And whether, you know, you want to blame the front office for that, whether you want to blame Ime Udoka for his own offense, although I think it's too early to really have a sense of what kind of coach he is, or whether you want to blame Tatum and Brown and the roster itself, the point is, like, the, if you watch the Celtics through a few weeks of the season, like, the, the offense is very clunky, and it often kind of wastes away into nothingness, and there's a reason, as I mentioned in the post, I think now they're, like, bottom 10, but when I first started writing it, they were actually fourth in terms of the frequency of possessions that end with a shot in the final four seconds of the shot clock. Now, a lot of that can be early season noise, but a lot of it is also just like, they're not creating advantages within their offense. You know what I mean? They're not creating the kind of advantages that force defenses to scramble, that tilt the floor, that allow you to maybe find a high percentage look earlier in the shot clock. Like there, a lot of their possessions are going late and ending up with just like one of Tatum, Brown, or Dennis Schroeder for that matter, trying to rescue them. And it like it bears out in the numbers. So uh, Brown has actually scored pretty efficiently in isolation this season. But if you look at his like historical performance, it's probably unwise that he is being put in those situations or putting himself in those situations as often as he has this season. But like Tatum and Schroeder are both top 15 in the league right now in ISO frequency and are both bottom 15 in ISO efficiency. The Celtics as a team are second in the frequency of their possessions that end in isolation, but 22nd in efficiency in isolation. And like, to put it in perspective, like the only team going to ISO more often than them right now is Brooklyn. There's a big difference between having Kevin Durant and James Harden and not having those guys. When you're, you know, there's like Brooklyn's number one in frequency, number three in efficiency. If you look at the top five teams in ISO frequency, Four of them also rank in the top 12 in efficiency. And then there's Boston, who's 22nd. So again, not to necessarily put all the fault on Tatum and Brown, but I think you're seeing the limits of an offense predicated on those guys without a lead initiator, as we've discussed before, and preferably a star lead initiator. So all of that is to say, I think you can win with those guys, but you need another star in the mix and ideally a like star lead initiator. The problem is, is like, how do you get that guy? And and the way things have gone for the Celtics, it's gotten to the point where I don't think you can get that guy anymore without one of Tatum or Brown going the other way. So you're kind of in this like weird position right now. So then if you look at it like, okay, they want to contend. They don't just want to be a good team with Tatum and Brown that's kind of like stuck in the middle or just above that. And they are going to have to move one of those guys for a star lead initiator who are they trading? I think despite the fact Brown's been better through a few weeks of this season, I don't, unless you disagree, I don't really think there's any debate that if you're going to keep one of those guys, it would be Tatum. Like he's two years younger. He's longer. I think he can do more and carry it like 
bigger burden offensively. And I think he's got the better defensive upside, though. Again, I do acknowledge Brown's been better on both ends so far this season. Then you start looking at, okay, well then like if Brown is simply a trade chip, what kind of value does he possess? And I would say it's mammoth. Like we are still talking about a guy in his mid-20s that's already made an all-star game, plays both sides of the ball. I think it'd be like a fantastic complimentary piece on a contending team. Could be a great piece to like be part of a rebuild with going forward. It's just that on this team, in this situation, I don't think it makes sense to go forward with these two guys when you can't really make significant improvements around them. So I think you should move them. Now, you know, who you should move them with, we can have that debate. Like, is Ben Simmons actually a better basketball player or a better fit than Jalen Brown? I'm not saying I'm convinced of that, but I think I think they should be banging the doors down in Portland because I think if you pair Damian Lillard with Jason Tatum, I think that is a contending duo. And I think that makes life easier and better for Jason Tatum as well. And I know like, Dame continues to say literally he's got 10 toes in Rip City. But, you know, if another Blazers season goes off the rails, I just find it hard to believe that Dame would actually be against like forming a contending partnership with Tatum in Boston, you know? And, and yeah, like the, the, re- I, the last thing I'll say here is the reason why I mentioned I don't think the Celtics have a path to significant improvement without moving one of Tatum or Brown is because, okay, I mentioned the guys they lost. Uh, without getting anything in return except for Horford's comeback and a couple second round picks. Remember all those years of like, what will the Celtics do with all this draft capital? Well, I don't want to say they're out of options there, but like they don't have any extra firsts anymore. This new front office now led by Brad Stevens doesn't have nearly as much to work with from a draft capital standpoint. Financial flexibility wise, they have more than $90 million committed to Tatum Brown, Marcus Smart, and Robert Williams two years from now. So free agency isn't going to be the way they get like a superstar level initiator either. So again, you just start putting all the pieces together and it's like, sure, it's great to have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on the same team and going forward, but it doesn't look like they're going to be able to put the piece or pieces around those two guys anymore that can actually take them from just perhaps a good, maybe like second round playoff team to a true contender. And I don't think they're doing that unless they get the type of player they will now need to trade a Jalen Brown for. So I realized that was a very long rant <laughs> with a lot of stuff packed in there. You haven't spoken in about half an hour. But I do want your thoughts on this because I, as I was mentioning to you off air, this to me is no longer just a thing of like, okay, this was my bold prediction preseason and now mm-hmm. I'm just going on. Like I truly believe this, that the Celtics can be good with these guys, but the sort of corner they back themselves into like they can no longer be great or like true contenders and le- unless one of these guys is making way for another star coming in yeah and i mean if you look at if you kind of zoom out and just look at what's happened to the celtics over the last few years it's like kind of inevitable right like what mm-hmm. team in the nba would be able to survive the kind of talent drain yeah. that the celtics have undergone you know like they lose Kyrie and hayward for nothing Kemba, they bring in as this prized free agent signing that seems like the kind of lead initiator that's going to be able to tie everything together. It works out like gangbusters for a little while. And then his knees deteriorate to the point that they had to dish out a pick just to turn him back into Al Horford, who's the guy they decided not to re-sign so they could pursue Kemba instead. It's crazy to think that they could have just, like it looked great at the time because Horford's season in Philly went so terribly. And the first part of Kemba's first season in Boston went so well. It was like, okay, Boston clearly played this very right. And like, they did get a conference finals appearance out of that first season with Kemba. But if you look at like where they are now, 
it's like they could have just re-signed Horford to a deal that everyone was absolutely dragging after his season in Philly. And they would have been in the same position they're in now, but like with an extra first round pick in hand (laughs) if they had just done that rather than going after Kemba. And that doesn't mean that they were wrong to go after Kemba. I just felt like that was the right decision. But things have just worked out in such a way. Obviously, you know, Hayward gets devastatingly injured five minutes into his Celtics career. Everything goes haywire for Kyrie for all the reasons that it did. And now Kemba is playing elsewhere and Horford is back in the fold and they're having a lot of the same issues that they've always had. Like they rim pressure just somehow continues to be an issue with this team, no matter who is playing there around the kind of Tatum Brown smart core. They just can't get to the rim. And Tatum ought to be able to Brown ought to be able to. Those are big, long, strong wings who can put the ball on the floor. Uh, They just obviously they're more jump shot reliant or more jump shot focused. And the team as a whole, like for a team that's not getting to the rim a lot, needs to shoot the ball way better than this team has been shooting it in order to be effective offensively. Um, You mentioned the ISO frequency, which, again, without a facilitator to kind of tie all these pieces together, just sort of becomes a bit of an inevitability. I mean, one of the things that I was hoping was going to happen is like Robert Williams, who's this incredible finisher, right, who has a massive catch radius and is just able to go and get anything and like dunk everything around the basket. That seemed like the kind of piece that could really help in the areas where Boston has been weak in the past and just give them like a bit more rim presence. And I, I think Williams has been like pretty good on the whole. I wouldn't say he's been as good as I had hoped or expected him to be, but it's more just like, he's not, he's taking six shot attempts a game. So it's like, he can only can only impact their offensive process and their shot profile so much when when his usage rate is 11%. So I don't know. Either they need to find a way to get him more involved. He needs to find a way to get himself more involved. There's also, I mean, the reason they got Schroeder, I think, or the reason I felt like Schroeder would actually be a good fit there is because he does have a lot of north-south juice. He can get to the rim, but he's also Dennis Schroeder, right? Like, I think he's a good player, He'd be a nice sixth or seventh man to have, but if he is your primary source of downhill attacking and your primary source of rim pressure, I don't think that's quite where you want to be. And he's pretty meh as a playmaker. So it's like, I think that's the issue that they're kind of finding themselves in now. And I agree with you. It's not, you don't trade Jalen Brown because he's not a good player or you don't think that he's a good fit with your team. Like you trade Jalen Brown because you feel like the team needs a different dynamic and the only way to make any kind of meaningful upgrade is to trade him. And there's no fit question between Brown and Tatum, right? Like those guys fit together fine. They would work together really well. We've seen them work together really well in the past. It's just, yeah, they they need that kind of primary facilitator, I think, to tie them together. And so if there were a way for them to get a Ben Simmons while keeping both of those guys, I'd feel fantastic about it for Boston. But you know, and again, like you mentioned this, it's not like anything's been reported that Boston is even considering trading Jalen Brown for Ben Simmons, nor do I think they should do that, at least not as like a straight up swap. It's more just like based on what Philly has been asking for in Simmons negotiations, that's the piece that Boston would have to put on the table. Like, I don't think a Marcus Smart, Robert Williams centric package is moving Philly. And even if you look at, like, you mentioned Lillard, but, like, whoever else it happens to be, if you look around the league and, and think about potential targets, like, guys that they could go after 
to fix some of their issues. Yeah, I mean, they have all their own picks, I guess, and they could throw a bundle of those on the table and see where that gets them. But like Smart is the guy with the salary that would make sense to use as ballast in a deal like that, where you're attaching picks, you're attaching a young player, whether it's Williams or like Langford or somebody like that. I think the problem is like Marcus Smart just doesn't really work for a rebuilding team, you know? Maybe Robert Williams does. Like, yeah, he definitely still has a lot of upside. So maybe that is a way that they could get it done. But I just don't. I See, I think Robert Williams works for a rebuilding team, like for sure. And, you know, he makes more money now on the new deal. So like there, there's something there. But, you know, a package of Robert Williams, insert veteran name, plus picks to me, like that's not getting you a game changer. It might get you a good player to mm-hmm. help Tatum and Brown. But like, at that point, now you're giving away your best young player and asset and picks and a veteran, like just to get a little bit. And like, I don't think that's enough. So like, that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, if anything, you know, you, you move Brown with, I don't know, multiple picks and, and something else. Like now you're obviously in the mix to get a true star with Tatum. And maybe you can do that. And if you're moving Brown, you probably can do that and not even have to move Williams. And if a star initiator comes in, makes Tatum better and, and makes his life easier and, and like a star initiator coming in while keeping Robert Williams is really good for Robert Williams too, because that probably does get him more opportunities as like mm-hmm. a roller and a finisher in the pick and roll. It does give him a chance to show off that crazy catch radius you talked about. I got, I think it works in a lot of ways. And I think maybe like the worst thing the Celtics can do right now is get stubborn and say, no, we're committed to the Tatum Brown duo and we're just going to find a way to like make marginal gains around them and then you end up moving like a Robert Williams and some of those picks to make a move that doesn't make you better by enough and now all you've done is gotten like a little better while further hamstringing your ability to get a lot better you know what I mean so like I get it it's gonna take bold risky decision making to like there's risks involved for sure but at some point it's like yo you're the Boston Celtics you've won 17 championships only one in the last 35 years though it's like if, if you're if you're content to just be this, which I don't think they are. I don't think that organization is, and fine. But if you want to truly contend again, you're going to have to bite the bullet here and, and move Jalen Brown. But also maybe, like, it, first of all, it's just totally dependent on the market and what yeah. a team, you know, what another team is willing to put on the table in a, in a deal for Brown. And then it's like, okay, they might still not be good enough. Like, odds are they still won't be. And that's just, that, that's the harsh reality for a team that has, lost as much talent as the Celtics have in the last few years without really recouping enough of them. Like Horford's been great this year, but in an ideal Celtics world, like that's, that's not what they would have expected or hoped to be getting out of the Kemba Walker deal. No. You know? And, and I mentioned that in the piece, I think I mentioned it last week on, on this show too, that like, especially when you consider health and now Brown's like, uh, availability and, and just everything in general. Like you can make the argument from a consistency standpoint, Al Horford's been their most consistent two-way performer through 10 games. And mm-hmm. sure, that's great for Al Horford. Like it's cool to see Al Horford playing like this again, but it's also like, uh, yeah, that that was not part of the plan. Their 35-year-old returning center was not supposed to be their most consistent player through a few weeks of the season. I think I would, if, if Philly was willing to do Simmons plus Maxi. For Jalen Brown, I think I would really think hard about it if I was Boston and probably pull the trigger on that deal. 
I don't know if I would do that deal if I'm Philly, though. I'd have to think hard about it. And maybe this is a good segue into your piece that went up yesterday on the app mm-hmm. about Philly's guard play early in the season, which Maxi has been at the forefront of. So I don't know. Maybe you take it away from there and talk about that. But I, like, you know, not to read too much into the first few weeks of the season, but based on how high both of us are on Maxi and individual offensive limitations aside with Ben Simmons, and as good as Jalen Brown is, like if you're Philly, are you giving away Simmons and Maxi for Jalen Brown? Like, is that something you're doing? I don't know. Maybe you answer that question and then you can get into your own piece that you wrote yesterday about Philly's guard play. I would say that that deal feels queasy enough for both sides that it, that it seems like it, it's kind of in the ballpark of what would be realistic and what would make sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you like definitely want to be nauseous on both sides. You make those magnitude of a deal. Like Maxi's been awesome. I mean, we talked about him before the season started. He was one of our our breakout player picks, and we talked about the role that he was going to be shoved into with Simmons sidelined, and how important it was going to be for him to rise to the occasion. Because if Philly had gotten off to say the kind of start that Boston is off to, there was definitely a chance that that was going to dial up the desperation when it came to their Simmons dealings and. I think there's a pretty good chance that regardless, they were going to wait it out until at least December 15th when, you know, the free agents that signed in the off season uh, become eligible to be traded. But I do think the fact that they have gotten off to this start. And like I said, half the teams in health and safety protocols right now, including Tobias Harris, who's been in there for a while. So maybe he's getting closer to a return. But uh, according to Doc Rivers, Harris had COVID like pretty bad. Um, And Bede, is now in health and safety protocols. Matisse Bible is in health and safety protocols. Seth Curry, who's been hitting literally everything he throws up this season, uh, is dealing with a foot injury. He didn't play last night. So things could still get kind of dire for this team. Like, I don't think, you know, they're still near the top of the Eastern Conference. They still have the number one offense in the league, which they're hanging on to by a thread. But obviously that's not going to be the case for much longer. So... You know, maybe we turn around in a couple weeks and they're like 500 or below and that changes the way that they want to go about this or the way that they're operating. But I think if we're taking a big picture view, like they are going to eventually get healthy again. And the signs that we have seen from their guards gives me a lot of optimism that once they're healthy, they're going to continue to be a force, you know, with or without Simmons. If we're thinking about their playoff prospects, I, I still kind of feel like they have to make that move where they're swapping Simmons for like a legit all-star caliber creator in order to get over that hump. I, I think Maxi is further along this season than probably I would have expected him to be. Furkan Korkmaz has been excellent as like a sort of second side creator where they'll involve him in actions when he's coming off of curls, coming off of pin downs, and they let him create on the move. And his passing, I think, has really leveled up this season. Also, you know, before last night when he had a miserable shooting game, he was shooting the lights out, like leading the team in pull-up three-point shots and hitting 48% of them, which is like, I wrote about this, the whole team basically. I want to like use all the stats before like last night's game because I just feel like everything from here from here until Embiid gets back just like doesn't count but they were the single best pull-up shooting team in the league 
the Sixers, which is like, that's been an issue for this team for a while. You know what else they were number one in the league in? Scoring efficiency from pick and roll ball handlers. This is a completely different Sixers team than we've seen in the past few years. Like they actually do have a decent amount of shot creation, a whole lot of three-point shooting. But I think, I just don't think it's quite enough right now. Like I just don't think any of those guys, as good as Maxi has been, as good as Shake Milton has been, as good as Maz has been, as good as Seth Curry has been, when it gets down to like you're in a playoff setting against a switching defense, Maxi is the one guy I think he can attack without a screen. He can break down a defense one-on-one because he has the first step. He has that speed. Apart from that, it's like those guys aren't creating their own advantages. And Maxi, for as good as I think he is, is still, you know, he's a middling playmaker. I, I think, okay, so here's what I'll say. If they can kind of sustain that level of production, I think it changes maybe the type of player that Philly would have to get in exchange for Simmons that could still put them over the hump. Whereas like maybe before the season you would say, okay, if you traded Simmons for McCollum, like that's not getting the Sixers anywhere or like Simmons for Malcolm Brogdon, something like that. Whereas now I feel like that could be enough. And maybe that actually makes them too guard heavy at this point, but Honestly, like running lineups with four guards plus Embiid has been really, really effective. Like that's why they have the number one offense in the league right now. Despite the fact that if you look at Embiid's individual numbers, his efficiency is way, way down from where it was at last season. And as you pointed out in the post too, like they, they were performing better finally with Embiid on the bench because of the performance of all these, and maybe a little bit too, because Embiid himself hasn't been quite as dominant as he usually is. But yeah, that's been this team's Achilles heel for like how many years now? That not just because, okay, you don't expect them to be better with him on the bench, like obviously, but not just that they can't be better with him on the bench, but that they cannot survive a minute or two without him on the bench, especially in the postseason. Like that's been their biggest Achilles heel. And I do give this kind of quartet of guards that you wrote about credit. I give the team credit in general. And even like... Yo, give about, Andre Drummond credit, man. Yo, Drummond's been great in his role, man. Like he is filling his role and then some. Like could not ask for more for Andre Drummond. But I was going to say too, like even we mentioned them giving Milwaukee a fight with freaking half their roster out with COVID and, and Seth Curry now dealing with, I think, a foot injury. But like even you pointed out in the post, even before them giving Milwaukee a fight on Tuesday night... Harris had missed the last five games. I think uh, Green had missed three of them. And they went mm-hmm. four and one in those five games. And then you take out Curry for the sixth one. And like, okay, they lost, but they competed with Milwaukee. Like, I, you can't really ask for much more from this team so far. Who, now I don't know if they still are after Tuesday's game, but were the number one seed in the East going into that game. Like, all the praise in the world for what they've done so far. And the thing too is like, what that quartet of guards has done. As you mentioned, it perhaps changes the thinking slightly in what they need to get back in a Simmons package, but it also helps them in the leverage they're trying to create in trading him in general, because I'm not saying that, okay, you're eight and four. So now it's just like, well, we can just keep kicking the can down the road and, you know, going half the season without Simmons or replace him for him, but it makes it easier. You know, it makes it a lot more palatable to wait a little longer for the package you want when the team is eight and four, as opposed to four and eight, like that stuff matters. But yeah, like the the one thing that is just keeping me from from fully buying in is that as we both know, you know, for as great as Maxi and Curry and Milton and Korkmaz have been, if you can get the same kind of pull up 
and pick and roll ball handler effectiveness and efficiency from these guys and productivity all year long and into June, I'd be like, oh, this team can win a title because Embiid's that good. And you start that, like if he has that kind of pull-up creation around him and shooting around him and pick and roll ball handler creation around him, absolutely this team can compete for title. The problem is obviously it's legitimately unfair to expect uh, Maxi Curry, Milton, and Korkmaz to be this good in those situations all year. Like th- there's a reason they're not those players. And so... I think it's bought them time, and I think it has maybe changed the equation a little bit if these guys are even incrementally better, but you just you can't expect those guys to do what they're doing now in the postseason. Like I, I'd say it's as close to impossible as it gets, but I do commend them for buying them time and perhaps changing the equation because that, that, yeah. that is big in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's just because a huge part of their success is like they do a really good job of reversing the ball right? Like they're creating these kind of small advantages and they've done a really good job of extending those advantages. They're constantly having Maxi and Curry working at opposite wings, right? And they'll attack from the side. They'll get a step or a half step. Curry, usually it's using a screen. Maxi can do it without one. And they're drawing nail help. They're kicking to the opposite wing. And that guy is able to either, you know, extend the advantage by driving and making another kick out. Curry's been automatic from mid-range. He's hitting his floater. So like that's been a big part of it. They're doing a really good job, like between all of those guards of catching the ball, making quick decisions, making the next play, whether it's hitting a shot or just driving a closeout, getting into the teeth of the defense. Um, And that's where I think like having those three or four guard lineups has been really helpful for them. The ball doesn't stick. And I don't think those are the kind of lineups. I don't know, actually, maybe that maybe that is the kind of lineup they'd be running in a playoff series. But I also think. I just feel like defenses are going to be a little bit more clued into that in the playoffs. Like they'll get a better feel for sort of closing out short. Like even if you watch that Knicks game, and I know it's not fair to judge because Embiid wasn't there and that just makes a mammoth difference, obviously. But like the Knicks were very prepared for those ball reversals and those possessions sort of just ground down to like the ball swinging around the perimeter and it never touched the paint. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that could happen in a playoff setting where it's like, we can't rely on any of these guys to really create their own advantages. So it's basically just what we've seen in the past where it comes down to how much can MB do to create for himself and everybody else. And that's the thing that they have to be trying to avoid this time around. So, yeah, I think, look, the Simmons situation is going to continue to drag on. I, I don't see it ending anytime soon, but I do think the guard play has been really, really encouraging from Maxi and Curry in particular. And I just think you know, you find a way to like put those guys next to another creator who's going to have a little bit more one-on-one juice, you know, a little bit more ability to break down a a playoff caliber defense. And then I think they're really cooking with gas. But so far it's like, it's definitely been positive things for that team. And I mentioned Drummond, like, I just want to give him like a more extended shout out because he's really bought into his role in a way that he hasn't done in the past. And it's just... Like he's screening hard, he's rolling hard to the basket, he's rebounding everything. I think he's been excellent defensively. I I don't think I've seen like a single misguided post up from him this season. And that has gone a long way toward helping the Sixers, at least so far, you know, survive the minutes when Embiid hasn't been on the floor. And maybe that's the answer to their long-standing backup center issues. So Big shout out to him. I think, you know, that's been sneakily a big part of their success so far. 
Yeah, and even when you mentioned some of the offensive creativity too, good uh, good start to the season for Doc Rivers. If uh, care about those things, just keep the guy away from three one leads. <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, let's take a quick break here, and we'll move over to the Western Conference when we come back. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we talked about Boston, Philly, a couple of teams that have some questions to answer in the Eastern Conference. Over in the West, the Northwest Division, it's a bit of a shambles right now. I think it's fair to say. Obviously, the Jazz are just kind of running laps around everybody. and. I don't think this team has anything left to prove in the regular season. So I just don't know if there's anything really interesting to talk about with that team. And I just, I understand as a fan of that team, why that would be frustrating. Like you're just sort of like waiting for the playoffs to happen, but they're, they're like going to run away with the Northwest division. And to me, what's going on with the rest of the teams in that division is a little bit more interesting. So Denver, Portland, Kind of a lot going on with those teams right now. Where do you want to start? Let's do Denver, but I do want to say one thing about the Jazz. Okay. One, they're a regular season juggernaut, and I don't yes. mean any disrespect by that. Like They're a great team, as you mentioned. Going to run away with the Northwest Division. They should. We also yeah. both predicted that they would win the West, so let's, let's make sure that that's out there as well. Yeah, so you predicted they'd win the West. I think I predicted they'd lose in the conference finals to the Lakers, okay. uh, a healthy Lakers team, which I, but I did at the time say, like, I had How are you feeling about that prediction? Not great. And if you remember in, in that um, predictions podcast episode, I did say, like, I have way less faith in this Lakers pick than I ever have before and way less faith in the LeBron team ever. Like, and I even said at the time, like, this is not like usual where I'm just like, okay, if LeBron and AD are healthy, everything will be fine. Like, I even said specifically, I'm very open to just being completely out on this team like three weeks into the season and we're basically there. But back to what I want to say about the Jazz. Like, look, great team, great regular season team. Hassan Whiteside has been solid for them off the bench. Like, they're just a regular season juggernaut. They're going to win a lot of games. Having said that, I don't think it's like... Because I, I, I always see stuff about like, you know, like uh, like appreciating this team and whatever. And I, sure, appreciate them. Like, they're a great team. But I also don't think it's like unfair or... In any way, like, I do service to them to, to almost not ignore them because it is great basketball to watch. But you know what I mean? To, like, say, well, they got to show it to me in the playoffs. Because let's be clear here. There's a team that two years ago blew a 3-1 lead in a playoff series. And last year lost to a kawhi Clippers team. So it's not like there are not reasons to legitimately say, hey, prove it to me in the playoffs. You know, And that doesn't mean you just completely ignore everything they're doing in the regular season, or it doesn't mean you can't appreciate like how good Rudy Gobert is, how great Donovan Mitchell has been, how good the team is in general. But I did want to just say that. like the, This team has given us reason to say, get it done in the playoffs. Like I'll believe it when I see it. All that aside, <laughs> let's talk Nuggets, I guess, because uh, there's there's a lot to talk about. Look, the Jokic one-game suspension, it is what it is. I mean, we're a few days removed from that now. All I say is like, Clearly should not have hit the guy, hit Markeith Morris with his back turn. Also, Markeith Morris, if you're about it the way you say you're about it, you know damn well not to turn your back to a guy after 
hitting him with a cheap shot you hit him with. And even if you like watch the replay, the tough guy strut Markeith kind of starts doing after cheap shotting Jokic like in the ribs. It's just kind of funny to see him do that strut and have no idea he's about to get trucked. Both in the wrong there. That's all I'll say about that. But in terms of the Nuggets as a team, look, it, it's very possible because Jokic is that damn good at basketball that like they just find a way to hang in there because they continue to do that as long as he's on the court. But Murray, we don't know when he's going to be back, if at all, this year. Porter, I mean, there's no timeline on this. Like the guy's got some back issue that, as you mentioned, has plagued them the entire time he's been in the NBA and before that. That's concerning, not just this year, but based on the max contract he signed. And like I talked a couple weeks ago about how Aaron Gordon, bless his heart, still very over, like obviously overextended when he's asked to do too much offensively. And he might have to be asked to do that again. Like they need a lot from Barton and Monte Morris now with the way things are going here with this yeah. roster. And, and I don't know how much they can expect from those guys. But Barton's been pretty Barton's good. Barton's been awesome yeah, so far. Yeah, he has. But they, they, they're going to need that and then some. And again, they're going to need Monte Morris to do more heavy lifting offensively. Like, it's not impossible because I, I have that much faith in Jokic. But it's just tough to see the Nuggets being what we thought they could be with Porter now out indefinitely, Murray's return up in the air, like I, I don't know what it would be a lot easier to have this conversation if we knew how long Porter was out. If if he's out for just a significant amount of time, like I don't know what what do you think? Does this team tread water in the meantime? Do they go on a nosedive? Like I feel like Jokic's presence ensures they won't nosedive. A hundred percent. Jokic and four guys is treading water at the no. least. Yeah. So and then so maybe they're fine. Like they're six and four right now. If if Porter's out but comes back and this is still like a team around 500 or slightly above it. And honestly, given the fact that this year, the West is not what it used to be. If you're around 500, like you should at the very least be in the play-in mix. And then at that point, it's just like, can you get healthy going into the play-in or playoffs if you're this team and you have Jokic and maybe everything's fine, but it's definitely concerning. And even long-term now, you have to be concerned based on the back stuff with Porter and the contract assigned to him. Yeah, long term, I agree. Like, it's definitely concerning. They just gave Porter a max contract, and basically, nine games into it, he's on the shelf again with this chronic back issue. Which, by the way, even when he's been healthy, I do feel like has really affected him, especially at the defensive end of the floor. Like, he just cannot get into a defensive crouch. Like, he's too upright, and I think that back issue has to have a lot to do with that. At the same time, they're six and four with MPJ having a 41% true shooting percentage. Like it's kind of crazy. And they could be so much better than that. If their bench hadn't been a complete tire fire this season, like their net rating with their starters on the floor is out of this world. It's ridiculous. And if you sort of just isolate Jokic's minutes, all right, Jokic on the floor, Nuggets have a plus 14.8 net rating with him on the bench. Negative 19.1. That's a difference of 34 points per 100 possessions. And, you know, obviously it's a good thing for Denver that he's only getting suspended for one game. I kind of personally expected it to be a lot more than that. And that might have put them behind the eight ball. Because, like, if it if it had been a five-game suspension and they'd just gone 0-5 in those games, it's like, yeah, obviously it's a long season and it's still early. But any 0-5 stretch... I was going to say in the Western Conference, but actually the Western Conference is kind of trash this year. So maybe yeah. it's not as damaging as it might have been in the past, but still, like, that can come back to bite you. The one yeah, thing I'm throwing just... there, too, 
sorry, the one thing I'll throw in there too, and I put this in my Celtics piece, is like, I think, yeah, it's good to not read too much into small sample size and early season stuff for sure. But I think sometimes people go too far the other way when it's like om- they almost forget that a result, a loss, whatever in November doesn't mean less than, you know, the same outcome in March or in the thick of the playoff race. Like you don't want to read too much into it. You also can't just completely throw it aside or be like, well, it doesn't matter because it's early. So to your point, yeah, had they lost Jokic for three to five games, that shit matters, man. Like it doesn't matter because, that it's November. Yeah. And I think it's actually like the stakes are maybe even a little bit higher in the play-in game era where the difference between being the sixth seed and the seventh seed could be the difference between, you know, having to play a one or two game playoff as opposed to just getting in. And certainly despite a weakened Western conference field, like a, a stretch where you go Oh, and five could be the difference between being sixth and seventh. But I don't know why we're talking about this. Cause he only got suspended for one game. I just wanted to point out how, how ridiculous their split has been with him on and off the floor. And Honestly, the thing that's been most surprising about Denver is they're doing it with defense. Like the, they're 24th in the league in offensive rating, but they're number two in defense. Like that's why they've been winning games. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure how sustainable that is. I will say, I think Jokic has looked like he's been a defensive plus this year. He's been really good at that end of the floor. I think he's in better shape even than he was last season when he won MVP. He's moving better. We've mentioned before that he just, like has such good hands and that's why him playing up at the level of the screen has actually been super effective because he can be really disruptive on guards who try to make pocket passes or turn the corner. Um, But I think he's just done that much better a job of like getting up to the level and then recovering, whether it's getting back to the roll man or just getting back to the glass and rebounding. He's been a big plus at the defensive end. And that's just, I mean, there, there are increasingly few holes that you can poke in his game, right? Like he is, he definitely has a very strong case to be the best player in the league. I said throughout last year that he was unquestionably the best offensive player in the league. And now you pair it with his improved defense. And like, I think it would be hard to argue that he hasn't been the best player in the NBA this season. So he's been awesome. Like I mentioned, Will Barton in the absence of Murray and with Porter struggling the way that he did when he was healthy, Barton has really stepped up and been that kind of secondary creator. And Jokic is like such a good primary creator that you don't need a ton from your secondary creator on that team. But I think Barton's really given them that just, I don't know, they they just need to find a way to, maybe it's just about their stagger patterns and like playing fewer minutes with four bench guys on the floor at the same time. But like those lineups have just gotten absolutely destroyed, man. Dozier, Campazzo, even like Jeff Green, Jamichael Green, like guys who I think are really solid bench players lineups with those guys on the floor have been terrible and I I think they've struggled from a lack of creation offensively is where they've seen the biggest dip and I I feel like they've gotten a little bit of juice from Bones Highland actually in recent games so maybe that's the answer but it might just be I don't know they need a more aggressive stagger where there's more like Barton and bench lineups but that's that's the biggest issue for this team right now because their starters are destroying teams despite being without Murray and now being without Porter. Yeah. And, but that's the thing, right? You just, you can, you keep losing starters and it's like, at some point you need more, you need more bench guys and like less talented guys on the floor because you need to fill those minutes and it is only November and you can't like be wearing guys out. Right. Uh, But yeah, I think I, I do think we both believe in Jokic enough and how can you not given 
what we're seeing and the numbers he's putting up and what he's doing in general. Like he's been better this year than he was last year so far, which is batshit crazy given how special his MVP season was. I know I know you're uh, hosting this episode, but where, where do you want to go next? You want to go Portland and stick in the Northwest or should we go to the best team in the league right now? No, or should we, we cl- end with them? Save the best for last. Yeah, let's close with the Warriors. Let's quickly talk about Portland and sort of what's going on there. Look, they're they're five and six. They have a positive net rating. They're seventh in offense. They're the reverse of last year. Remember last year when they would ha- they had a winning record but a, po- a negative point differential. Well, they finished the season with a with a positive. Point yeah, differential, I mean for the majority of the season, though. Remember, yeah. Well, for a while, yeah, they were outperforming their point differential because they were absolutely ridiculous in the clutch. And the guy who was the biggest reason that they were ridiculous in the clutch by far is not doing it right now. Um, it's been a struggle for Dame. And I mentioned, I think he looked a lot better in that Clippers game last night, but I, I don't know that there's much more to it than he hasn't shot the ball. Well, I know his free throws are way down just like almost every star creator in the league right now. And that's been part of it. I think his finishing at the rim is way down. And probably that has something to do with the fact that a lot of those finishes that either would have been called as fouls in the past or times when the defender might've been less aggressive contesting because they were worried about picking up a foul. Like, I feel like that's changed and maybe that's part of it, but it's just like if Dame starts shooting the ball, like he shot it in the past, I feel like a ton of these problems just go away. And some people have pointed to like the new ball as maybe a reason that a lot of these guys are struggling with their shots. Dame certainly isn't the only one. Part of it might be that he's adapting to a new role on offense. Like they're playing him off the ball way more than they have in the past few seasons he's spending about two fewer minutes per game with the ball in his hands compared to last year. That's and that's a, that's a big adjustment. And I actually think big picture, that's probably a good thing. Like introducing a little bit more off ball movement for Dame, getting him more shots off the catch. Um, CJ started off the season really well. He's cooled off a bit, but he's mostly been good. I think Powell's been good. Uh, Anthony Simons, who was like a big question mark to me coming into the season has sort of had this little breakout that I feel like people have been expecting from him for a while. There's a lot of positive stuff going on there. And I think if Dame starts to come around, then this team could really take off. But look, there are still some, some troubling signs for sure. The new defensive scheme where they're bringing their bigs up to the level and trusting their backside rotations I think there are times that it's been effective and I get what they're going for. It's definitely juiced the activity level. They're forcing more turnovers, which during the Terry Stotts era, like they just never forced turnovers because they were playing ultra conservative, you know, drop coverage. And mostly just like using Nurkic to be like the last line of defense, which I do think is the best role for him. Like it's been a big adjustment for Nurk coming up to the level and trying to navigate that. But more, more than that, I just think it's a real challenge when guys like Dame and CJ and like Anthony Simons, like small guards are relied upon to make the backline rotations. Like it's not that they can't make those rotations. It's just like how much of an impact can those rotations actually have when it's a six foot one guy, like trying to get into your way. Like, and I really think CJ especially has been really competing at the defensive end of the floor. I think Dame's been giving more of an effort but those guys just don't play with a ton of force and physicality at that end. And when you're playing a scheme where 
they're relied upon to tag bigger guys on the back end, I just think that becomes a bit of a challenge. So yeah, and Covington um, hasn't been himself either. Yeah, he started out really slow last year too, and then he kind of found True. his groove. So I'm I'm hopeful that that will happen for him again. But yeah, it's just. I mean, they're 22nd in defense, which is actually an improvement from last year. So yeah. they have been better. I guess I would just say I think they should use that scheme a little bit more selectively. And I think they will. I, I feel like at the start of the season, they were just doing it on like almost every possession against like no matter the opponent, because I feel like Billups just wanted to drill it and get them used to doing that. Uh, and it does seem like they've scaled it back in recent games like they actually trapped fairly infrequently against the Clippers last night but it's like yeah you don't need to be blitzing De'Aaron Fox you know and I think over the course of the season once they feel a little bit more solid and comfortable with that as their base then they'll start to use it a little bit more selectively but like for now like like the result of it has been they're allowing a ton of threes and they're also allowing a ton of shots at the rim like that, that their defensive shot profile is a not mess. A great combo. Yeah. Yeah. They're just not, they're, they're trying to take away everything and they're ultimately taking away nothing. Like they're giving up the most profitable looks and that's just not tenable. And yet I think Dame comes around, their offense could be good enough to offset it, you know, to the point that they're going to be significantly on the positive side of the 500 ledger. So that, that's the on-court stuff. And then, the off-court stuff is, it's been, I don't know, man, it's been, it's been not a great few months for Neil Olshay between the way that he handled the Billups hiring, the way that he threw Terry Stotts under the bus. Yeah, just taking you know, no accountability taking no whatsoever accountability for, for the, the team roster. that he built. Yeah. yeah, putting it all on Stotts, basically, and now being investigated for creating like a toxic workplace environment yeah. where... I think that, you know, there are accusations of intimidation, bullying, profanity-laced tirades, uh, and just a general inability to cultivate healthy working relationships. So I'm curious, you've been on the side of, okay, Dame's saying that he's recommitted, that he's bought back in, but it's not going to hold. Ultimately, there's going to be a breaking point. He's going to ask out. Do you think this affects that in any way? Like, Cause it just feels to me like a bad look, you know, like the, yeah. this team just being embroiled in more controversy and turmoil. I think for sure it, it's going to play into that. And I, I, I know we've had this conversation so many times with Dame and the loyalty thing, but like at some point there has to be a limit. Right. And it almost reached its breaking point this off season, this past summer. And okay. He's recommitted and 10 toes in rip city. But like if they were, and I'm not saying they're off to a terrible start right now or whatever, but if like they were off to a great start, and there was something there and okay, the old Shea stuff comes out. Maybe it ends with them having to fire him or whatever the case may be. They bring someone else in. Yeah, that's some turmoil. But if they're off to a great start, things look good. Like you can still look at it as like, okay, like Dane was already talking about being committed and on the court, things are going well. There's a path here. I wouldn't be so down on it, but there's still not really a path to true contention here. And... Like, I don't think they're going to be much better than a 500-ish, maybe a little better team this year. So, like, when you add all that stuff up and you have the off-court turmoil that, you know, extends beyond just this investigation with O'Shea, but the last few months in Portland in general, and you add the O'Shea stuff in now and there's going to be turmoil related to that because while obviously neither of us know the specifics or what might come out of it, like, 
I don't think it's a reach to at least speculate that this might result in a front office upheaval, right? Like that's a possibility given what the investigation is looking into. I just think that's too much turmoil in a situation where there's already so much smoke and just not the final flame that really lights the fire. You know what I mean? And and I, I just feel like there is maybe one more shoe to drop that is just, okay, like this is it now, Dame is going to want to. And I, I think this might be that final shoe that we're all waiting for to drop. Yeah. Like, how could I, it not be, man? Well, <laughs> I don't know. And I, I just, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that he would care about. Yeah, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he just wants O'Shea out anyway. Maybe this is actually better. Like, I don't know. Or maybe it just sort of gives him the cover that he feels like he needs to be like, well, I was really committed and I was really loyal, but this is just too much. Yeah. Um, but also, it's just funny because the optics of the situation would be really bad in the midst of him having this epic slump where he's been like one of the biggest reasons that the Blazers have not performed up to expectations. And I, again, like, does he care about the optics of that situation? I feel like with Dame, he actually would. He seems pretty image conscious to me. Yeah. And in, in that Chris Haynes report about the offseason meeting he had at LeBron's house. Uh, yeah, I Let's believe... call it what it is. It was, this was a, a Damian Lillard story as told to Chris Haynes. hundred percent. Yeah. It's it was <laughs> it, uh, in that story as told by Dame. And relayed by Chris Haynes. He, uh, I believe, mentioned at one point, like actually saying to LeBron that like, you know, he would, I don't know what he said about the image of it, but he did mention like not really seeing himself as one of those guys that like just goes to a super team. And I have to imagine that the majority of that is him slightly concerned about like the optics of it and the perception. So yes, to your point, I do think he cares about that stuff, but I just think everyone has their limits. And I mean, if Dame's limits haven't been tested yet, then I don't know, man. I guess he just really does love it in Rip City. And and as we mentioned, you know, when talking about other guys' situations, we're not here to judge that. Like, at the end of the day, like, however a player finds happiness, whether it's, you know, just ma- maximizing his earning potential, whether it is just being absolutely comfortable and him and his family finding that, like, whether it is just winning at all costs and not caring about the other stuff, like, no judgment, however a player wants to spend their career. It's just hard to imagine a player as good as Dame not having a limit to that loyalty you know so uh, yeah i don't know well it's also like he has four years left on his contract and as we've seen <laughs> yeah, with the ben simmons situation it's kind of hard to force your way out when you don't have that leverage with your team when you have four years left on your deal and they have no real incentive to trade you i, I will say with simmons is different because the sixers can't find a trade package for him that they like because his exactly. value is in the tank and for as much as Dame has struggled so far, I feel like there are probably a lot more teams around the league that would be willing to take that leap. But it yeah. also comes, this is what makes it a challenge. Is like Portland sitting there and being like, we have a superstar in his prime with four years left on his deal. Like we can't get fleeced here. We need to get an absolute haul in return. And that really, really whittles down the number of teams that you could conceivably make a deal with and possibly eliminates all the teams altogether. Like as good as Dame is, how many teams around the league can cobble together the salary to match and then add in like a whole ton of future capital, whether it's prospects or draft picks and come away feeling good about that. Like if you totally gut your team to get Dame, then I don't know, where are you at really? Like you're just going to be either in the same situation that Portland's in now or an even worse situation because the the roster around him isn't even going to be as good as the Blazers currently are. It, it, it just makes it a big challenge. Yeah, it's not an ideal situation that everyone but Neil O'Shea has created, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
anyway, I, I remain, I think, higher on the Blazers than consensus. As much as I think that you know the new defensive scheme hasn't hasn't worked for a variety of reasons, uh, I do think they will be better than they've been so far. And I actually still expect them to be like a top six team in the West. Like I don't I don't expect them to be in the play in, but it's certainly been a, a, a troubling start for a number of reasons. If I dug a hole six feet deep, I still couldn't get any lower than I am on the Blazers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. So how how low are we talking? Like you think you, you uh, think they're not going to be in the top eight, like not making not, the playoffs? I think there'll be a play in team. And then if, I mean, if Dame's in the picture, you have a chance to win a play in game. Like I, yeah, I, I don't think they're a top six team. You know who is a top six team? The Golden State Warriors. The yes, number one team in the NBA right now at nine and one. They have the best half court offense in the league. I think they're fifth in offense overall, but in the half court, they're number one by like a significant margin. And number one in defense. So uh, a whole lot is going right in Golden State. And they've done it all, you know, with Clay still working his way back. So regardless of whether it's sustainable or not, they played a kind of light schedule. Like, obviously, I don't think they're going to keep winning 90% of their games. But or you have to teams by like 14 points per game. They're just yeah. throttling teams right now, it's, like it's old wild, school man. warrior style. Yeah, like they're, they're going without the those, talent they used to have. They're going on those epic third quarter runs, like those just avalanches where they're getting every stop and getting out and running and just like in a blink of an eye, like a four point lead has turned to a 17 point lead. Like it does have a lot of sort of old school warriors vibes. Obviously Steph's still at the center of it. And um, what's most amazing to me about him, we always knew his skill set was going to age pretty well, right? Because a a jump shot like that is just, there was only going to be so much regression given the way that he's able to shoot the ball and the attention that he commands as a result of his ability to shoot it like that. I think what's been most impressive to me about the way that his game is aging is like we really haven't seen a whole lot of drop off in terms of his fitness and energy levels and his ability to just run around off ball relentlessly throughout an entire game. Like he's what is he 33 now or 34? Like he's 33. He's 33 and he's still impossible to track off the ball and just never, ever stops moving. It's absolutely insane. I mean, that that 50-point, 10-assist game he hung on the Hawks the other night was majestic. And, uh, and it's just crazy to see him still doing all that at his age and with some of the injuries that he has in the rear view. So that's obviously what's powering them at the offensive end. But then defensively, again, they're number one in the league. Draymond is still at the center of that. He, to me, actually looks a little bit faster than he has in the past couple of years. Like he's still doing his thing where he's directing traffic and he's always in perfect health position, but he, he also looks like a little bit quicker to me. And I, I don't know. He's just a monster, man. Like dude, it, go ahead. Draymond's been fantastic. And yeah, yeah, he's anchoring the best defense in the league right now. He looks like he's regained a step that he had lost. And I'll even like point out on the offensive end. And I know this isn't like a new thing. It's Draymond, but it is, continues to amaze me how a guy with the individual offensive limitations he has who is also on a team with one of the greatest offensive players ever can still be so impactful and integral to an offense 
You know what I mean? Like it's oh yeah, it's it's incredible, but it's because of his brilliance and and, and the playmaking, obviously. And then yeah, you combine that with what he's still doing on the defensive end, and uh, you still have a fantastic player there. And you know, obviously, yeah, Clay's not back yet, but it's like, man, how can you not love and be just absolutely entertained as hell watching this team? Even we were talking about feeling like old school warriors, you know, almost similar to when. They opened that um, defending champion season in, what was it, 24-0, 25-0. But the difference is like, there's no clay. It's like they're, they're doing this without the overall talent they had then. And it's nuts. Like So so they're 9-1 now. They're throttling teams. And their one loss was an overtime loss by three points to Memphis. Like, yeah. they could very easily be 10-0 right now. It's, uh, it's awesome. And um, Obviously, like everyone else, very much looking forward to what this team could once again be once they get Clay in the mix, once he gets his legs under him. And I think the benefit, too, of getting off to the start they've gotten off to is barring some unforeseen nosedive between now and when Clay returns, which I cannot see happening, you know, God forbid, unless there's a significant injury or something. But the head start they've given themselves also makes it easier to get Clay back in the swing of things without needing him to be peak Clay Thompson immediately. You know, if it yeah. takes him a couple months to get in the groove of things, which it should take him based on the injuries he's coming off of, unless he's an absolute superhuman, you're not as concerned about it taking him a couple months to get into the swing of things when you've given yourself the head start. You've given yourself in a Western conference that, as we mentioned, is not what it used to be. Like, the Warriors getting off to this start, basically, as long as they do completely shit the bed between now and Clay's return, like, they've almost given themselves a the kind of start that I can almost pencil them into the top six now. You know, like, Oh my God. You know, yeah. And I was confident they were going to be a top 16 regardless, but I'm just saying like with this start now and, and the way Steph looks and the way Draymond looks like they, they'll be able to take their time getting clay into the swing of things and hopefully have him right by the playoffs. And then sky's the limit for this team. They're absolutely a title contender. Yeah. I, before the season, I had them finishing third behind Utah and Phoenix. I, I would think now I, I'm feeling pretty confident in saying they're the second best team in the West. And maybe the best if or when, you know, Clay gets back to something resembling his former self. Maybe that's going to happen. Maybe it won't. But only um, only team in the league, top five on both ends right now. Miami yeah, and just is the cut. Yeah. And like, look, I don't think we really need to talk a ton about the offense because we know what what it is and why and how it works. Though I do think, you know, like their offense wasn't good last year. Like they were a top five defense and that's why they made the play in. That's why they were an above 500 team. Like their offense was not good. So I do think the fact that it is now back to being top five matters, but I'm just to, to go back to Draymond and you mentioned that Memphis game, there was a possession in that game that literally made my jaw drop where um, he switched three times in rapid succession. And the last one got him uh, switched on to Steven Adams and he's guarding Adams in the dunker spot. And Jaron Jackson, who was on the strong side, looped around to the weak side corner and Wiggins was guarding him. And Draymond is like waving Wiggins away saying, stay on the strong side. Cause Morant was handling up top with, I can't remember who, but he was like, you need to be on the strong side to protect against a John Morant drive. And so Morant whips this pass to Jaron in the weak side corner. And Steven Adams immediately turns and sets like a pin in screen on Draymond to prevent him from getting out there to contest. And he gets around the Adams screen, which is like, it's really, really hard to get around a Steven Adams screen and blocks a Jaron Jackson three-pointer, which again, blocking a Jaron Jackson three-pointer is insanely hard to do. And he did all that in like the span of four seconds. And it's just, they, the Warriors have a lot of good defensive personnel. I think Wiggins has turned himself into a legitimately good defender, but Draymond is the straw that stirs that drink. And it's just, 
he's just amazing at that end. Um, I think, you know, the depth also is like the biggest difference probably from last year where they're not getting their asses kicked with Steph on the bench. And I think, you know, Bielitsa has been a great pickup for them. Otto Porter has been really effective. Damian Lee has come a long way. Um, Gary Payton, the second, like finally getting extended run in the NBA and has been absolutely incredible. Here's a stat for you, actually. Gary Payton, the second, has played 113 minutes this season. Let's see if you can guess or get in the ballpark of what the Warriors' raw plus minus is in those 113 minutes. Plus 120. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. You overshot it by a bit, but it's plus 92. Okay. In 113 minutes. That's insane. Um, Madness. So, yeah, like they're, they're plus 5.2 per 100 with Steph on the bench, which if you remember how disastrous those minutes were last year, that's, that's quite insane. Um, There's just a really good team, you know? Like You're it's... Contender. Full yeah. stop. And uh, very curious, obviously, to see what it looks like when Clay gets back. But uh, they have a very solid foundation in place. And the type of player that Clay is, it, he's not the kind of player who comes back and it throws everything out of whack, right? Because he's not going to dominate the ball. He's not really going to take a ton off of the table. And maybe he's not quite as plug and play, given the injuries that he's coming off of. And it's not going to be as seamless as you might expect. But I just think if you're trying to work a player back in without junking up whatever, you know, chemistry you have going on, I feel like there aren't many players that it would be easier to do that with than Clay Thompson. Absolutely. So I think we can leave that there. There are a ton of other things that we didn't get to talk about that I'm sure we can save for future episodes, but uh, I feel like that's enough for this week. So Cash, you are you happy uh, leaving that all there? And I can give us I a am. fan. Sh- I can give us a fan shout out actually I before am, yeah. we go. Yeah. Um, so this week's shout out goes to at Trill Bro Dude on Twitter, who, if you don't know, is one of the absolute best and funniest 76ers Twitter accounts, and also hosts a podcast called You Know Ball that is terrific. He actually plugged my recent Sixers piece, which I really appreciated, and also said that he loves the pod. So big shout out to Trill who, again, is just like one of the best Twitter personalities going right now and appreciate your listenership. So with that, I think, Cash, you've got one for us for next week. Yeah, I'll uh, keep that one banked for next week. It's a good one. Okay. So with that, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. <laughs>